Welcome to the River City Church podcast and a message by our lead pastor, Jason Powers. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life-changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. Good morning. So, so truly, like, 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 let's acknowledge the complexity of the day. And here's what that means for us. That means that whether you are celebrating and you're joyous and today is just the best day, or whether you are barely hanging on today, there's something for you today. There's something for you. Now, I want to tell a little bit of my story real quick, just shortly, okay? If you enjoy River City Church... If River City is your church home, if you have encountered or experienced God here, if River City as you know it is your church, then you enjoy your church because about 30 years ago, a mom started praying for me. I would not be here if it weren't for a mother who for years, without visible sign to the contrary, just didn't stop. And so here's the thing. One day, like, and I, we were off the reservation. My brother and my dad, we were all not interested and all that. And my mom went to church and she met this little, um, he was a Jamaican missionary. He was a Jamaican man from Sweden, a missionary to Turkey. Following good? Like, you got all that. It was a real global experiment, Right. And so my mom walked up, and she, she's sitting right there. We tell this, like, she just walked up. And she's just the thing, right? It's sad. My kids are terrible. And I was this, right? And he answered this phrase. And listen, I pass this on to you, right? Listen, are you listening? He looked her in the face, and it was this, just this smile, whatever. He said, the prayers of a mother are intercontinental ballistic missiles, Right? So as a child whose mom never stopped praying, I beg you, when you read in Romans chapter 12, I'm going to get emotional. When you read in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers. I urge you, brothers. Moms, don't quit praying. You know what my mom did one day? We were fighting because I was obnoxious. I was like 25 years old, and I just thought I knew everything, right? Because you haven't grown out of your omniscience by 25, right? And so I would like pick all these fights with her, and there's one day, and she just stood. It was at the step of the stair, bottom of the stairs, and she looked at me, and I would pick fights, right? Because I was like a Buddhist and an atheist, all full of myself and all this, right? And she just said, listen. She goes, stop. That's enough. She says, we will not have this conversation again. This is not a conversation I've had. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, I want you to know that my God is able and he loves you and we will not have this conversation again. And I was like, <laughs> I win. Woo! All right. Yeah. That night, literally that night, I had an encounter with the Lord. And if I told you the details, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever the count is like, I'm here and I wasn't on this trajectory. And so moms, don't stop praying. Your prayers are different. And do you know why your prayers are different, moms? Because your love is different. Love is the fuel for prayer. Love is what keeps us coming back. So keep praying for your kids. Keep praying for your spouse. Keep praying for whoever it is, whatever it is. Because your kids need you. So squeeze them and love on. And we've been talking about love a lot. And we saw kind of our big verse last week. Here's why. Like we've been talking about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writes, from now, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And the idea is, right, like we used to just look at people on the outside and think we could figure out and we could know what 
they are. We can know where they were by their job, by their behaviors, by their habits, by where they came from, by how much money they had or they didn't have or how they dressed or where they went to work or whatever it was. We thought we could know them. And what Paul is just saying is like, look, we thought that about Jesus, but time and history bore that out that we didn't know what we were saying. He says, At the end of this, right, if anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And we said the love of Christ actually makes things new. It actually has the power to change and to transform. And so that is why we make love the thing. That is why love is the calling. That is why we can change. Now, the problem is we live in a world surrounded by people who are unlovable. Nobody says amen to that, but you're all thinking it, right? We're just thinking it. We all know, right? And so this brings up this question, right? The reality is, oh, we're supposed to love everyone, right? We say that. We think it. We believe it. It's an idea, and it's a good thing, right? But what does it look like in practice? How do we love people that are, frankly, just terrible, right? Like, what is it? People that are different from us. They disagree with us. They believe things that we don't believe. Not only that, they believe things that we think are just wrong. So what is it that we look at? Are we really supposed to love those people the same way? How? Why? And those are the big questions. We spent the last couple weeks really talking about what love is. Love is a verb. It is an action. It's not a feeling, right? And we saw in 1 Corinthians, like, it's patient. Patience is something that you do, that you act on. It is kind. Kindness is a behavior. It's a behavior pattern. I'm going to say, when I don't want to be patient with you, but I am, I am being. I am choosing patience and kindness. I am choosing not to boast, not to make it about myself, but instead to make it about you and what's going on around your world and the kingdom that I see all around you. And we call this the potential, the opportunity within us. We call this In Latin, it's imago Dei, and it is the image of God. And we read all the way back in Genesis, right at the very beginning. Let us make kind, God said. Let us make mankind in our image. So in the image of God, he created them. When we look at others, we realize you have never encountered a person who is not created in the image of God. And so we can understand and believe that that's like tucked down in there deep somewhere, right? So when you look at all this stuff and you're like, Yes, right, but we can know there's something there, deeper, it's down, that's not only beautiful, but alive and good and capable of bearing fruit and capable of doing all of the things in this world that God called and created us to do. This raises what is, I think, in our culture, in our time, and in this day, the central question of this Christian ethic of love, right? Because we have this ethic, right? Like, like love, what did Jesus say, right? Love your neighbors, love your enemies. Like love, love fulfills the law, love does all this stuff. So the question that we have to encounter does, what does love require of me, right? And I'm not talking about this. This is my mom and dad, right? It's easy to love them, right? Because when I go to their house, they feed me. Other things, amen, yes, we get this, right? I mean, there are other things they do, but at a fundamental survival level instinct, man, they help me, like, survive, and they get it, right? But they've invested in me, and they're easy to love because in many ways, we're the same, right? It's much more difficult to love when we encounter someone who is fundamentally different, and I don't, I mean, I do mean they look different on the outside. I mean, maybe their skin is a different color or their hair is a different color or they come from a different place or they have more or less money or whatever. Those things can make it difficult. But I'm talking about 
The real difficulty is when we meet somebody, and whatever this is on the outside, we just find that we are fundamentally in disagreement about things that feel fundamental to us. The question then is, what does love require me of me in that case? In a situation where I find myself, like I said, fundamentally opposed to what a person believes or says or thinks or does? How does my love for my parents, for my brother, for my friends, how does that love connect with that love? It really, it, what it does is it brings up the questions that if you've been around church for a little while, maybe you've heard, maybe you didn't know what to do, and maybe even they felt kind of like icky and gross, right? Like, well, let's talk about this. Things that we say but we don't know. You can finish the sentence, right? We're to be in the world but not. What does that mean? In the world, but not of the world. See, here's the problem. Here's what we believe. Like, we have this idea. God hates evil. Easy. Nobody does. Anybody on here think, no, you know, God's really like in love with evil. No, right? God, God hates evil. So we know this. It's fundamental to us. We, we can get this, right? But we also can go another step. I hope that you can come to this place where you have this sense in your heart. Like, God doesn't hate me. Right? Even more, even if you're just taking it kind of like as a propositional truth right now, God loves me. God hates evil and God loves me. Therefore, what? Who's not evil? This guy. Here's the problem. You are different from me. So if God loves me because I'm not evil and you are different from me, Maybe God loves you, maybe he doesn't. We're just not really sure yet. The jury's out. We'll have to wait till we get to the top, right? We just want to make sure. And listen, we want to make sure as believers, as Christians, because we want to get it right, right? Like we want to, like we want to please God. We want to, do, we want to do what he says. We want to be where he is, right? So we figure, like, how can I be in this world and not of it? Like, so one of the things, right, like the Lord has made me a Houston Astros fan. Like, and I can't help it. I didn't choose it. I was born into it. Some of you have sinned and are New York Yankees fans. I pray for you. We occupy the same space, but we're not the same, right? And so the question is, right, if we have that, how do we then now, you've heard this too, like we can finish this. Hate the sin. Yeah, we got that. How does that play out? If I were to walk up to you and just be like, oh, hey, I love you. I hate the thing that you do. If I didn't know you, you would probably hear, I hate things about you. What do we do with that? One of the biggest things, I, I tell you, like well-meaning, well-intentioned people have come to me throughout this, throughout this series, and, and you can just tell for good reasons they're a little nervous, right? If I just love everybody always, the concern is if I do that, it's going to put me in a position where I'm going to have to what? Compromise. I have to compromise my faith. I have to compromise behavior. I have to compromise what God has called me to do right. If we believe that like love is this compromise, like you can mess with it a little bit. You can do a little bit of love, but in the grand scheme of things, you better not go too far with the love thing. If we're going to double down on something, we got to double down on the good part, right? Okay, so we're going to answer all these questions, right? We're going to deal with, with all of this. And we've transitioned from what is love? Remember 1 Corinthians 13, God is love. We've been unpacking that. It's kind, it's a choice, it's a verb, it's all of these things, right? We've transitioned that. Today, we're going to talk about why love is the ultimate. It is the final, it is the fullest expression. We're going to talk about why, and we're also going to talk about and look at how. And my hope is that you'll walk out of here, number one, again, always with a greater sense 
of the fact of the reality that you are passionately and deeply loved by a very big and a very good God. And then you'll know how to walk in this world lovingly, surrounded by people who are different from you, who believe different, who act different, who, who behave different, who do all of these things. And what we're going to find today, I think is a really good, good thing and encouraged and excited me, is that love actually is the Christian response to sinful people. Love is not just the response to people who are good, to people who are like me, to people who get it right. Love is the response to sinful people. So we're going to start and we're going to spend, really, look at two passages today. We're going to start, our first one is in Matthew chapter 5. Now Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are a passage of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you should turn to Matthew chapter 5. You can find it online. Uh, if you have a scroll or however it is that you get the scriptures, you, go, you can go find it. Look at Matthew chapter 5, right? This is what commonly called, some people call it the Christian manifesto, right? Like this is Jesus, and he had been walking around, and in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus looks at people and he says, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Now, this is super important. If you miss this, a lot of stuff isn't going to make sense. Jesus never talked about, no Jewish rabbis in the first century would have ever talked about dying and going to heaven. Okay? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's among you. Jesus later said, the kingdom is within you, right? So when we talk about Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is Jesus showing us a lot of verbs that he commands that we can choose to do. All kinds of things. That's what we're going to look at today. How to be citizens in this kingdom, how to live and express the kingdom within us. So we start in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 40, uh, what, 5, 43, it says this, Jesus talking says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now let's do a little language work, right? Because we've looked throughout this. There are several different words for love in the Greek language where this was written. There's the word phileo, which is like brotherly love. It's like, hey, buddy, right? This is like Jesus is my homeboy kind of idea, right? That's not the Greek word that Jesus used there. We can use the word eros, which is like erotic love, which is like, hey, baby, Jesus does not use that word here. That would be awkward. I could use the word storge, which is like love for my parents, which is like love for my brother. It's like, it's like familial love. None of those are the words that Jesus used. Jesus uses the word for love, agape, which is the love that we've been looking at. It is this self-sacrificing, self-giving love that is fully directed towards the well-being of another, towards someone else. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and love your enemy, but I say, or love your all that, what it says, hate your enemy, right? He's, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. So what Jesus is saying is agape, as God loves you, as God loves the world, you are to love everyone always. And this is so great. When Jesus said, at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So this is an important idea about love, right? Love your enemy, love your neighbor. You've heard it said. When he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbors, but hate your enemies, he's quoting a part of Leviticus chapter 19, uh, or Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus is the law. And in, if you go to Leviticus, and you should do this, you should go look later on today, it says, love your neighbor, but it doesn't say anything about hating your enemies. 
That part was added. And do you know how it was added? Do you know how it came to be added to the part where it was, it was so common in this culture that Jesus would quote it? It became by the kind of logical exercises that we did at the beginning, right? We came to believe we could go, yes, God loves me. God loves me. I am God's chosen. I am God's different. And you are so different from me, there is no way that God could love you also. And so if God loves me because I am so awesome and so good, then clearly he can't love someone like you who is so fundamental and different. Therefore, if God can't love you, and in the first century when they were reading this, it was things like Gentiles. Okay, people that were excluded from the covenant. It was people like Samaritans. Samaritans were like, they had a common like uh, heritage, a common background, but long time before this, they kind of got on different religious tracks. The Samaritans believed different from the Jewish people, and the tensions were so bad that the Samaritans and the Jews, they just, they just, they hated each other, right? And so they would have had a good kind of context and a good identity for, for what it was. They would have believed, that, like, God loves us as the Jewish people, and if he loves us, how can he not hate those Samaritans? How can he not hate those Gentiles? Now, let me acknowledge something for you. Let me tell you something that I believe about you. You're like, this is going to be good. Most of you, if not all of you, do not walk around your life harboring hatred for other people in your lives. I know. Now, there, now some of you do, and if you do, thank you for your honesty. You're welcome here. That's good. You're close. That's not God's desire for you. That's not God's best for you. We're getting close. We're going to figure that out. But a big thing for us today is what we can do this, if it's not people that you hate, what do we do with people who we disagree with and people who are disagreeable? And what we find when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, is that love, actually, is the legitimate expression of biblical truth. Jesus says this, it is not okay to hate your enemies Quoting the command to love. Here's something for us that's so important. Like as we're reading all this stuff and we're reading all these things, right? Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, whatever. The Old Testament does not get to trump Jesus. You don't get to go, Jesus said love your neighbors, but Moses and in the Old Testament, God said to kill everybody. So I'm going to choose that, right? What we find in the Old Testament, that whole ethic, right? That You know what we can get from the Old Testament? That way doesn't work, does it? How was the nation of Israel at the end of the Old Testament? Screwed up, right? It doesn't work. The political kingdom fighting and killing all your enemies, it doesn't lead to where you want. It doesn't go where you want to go, right? We don't get to trump Jesus with Moses. We don't get to trump Jesus with Paul, right? Like we don't get to go, oh, well, Paul said, you got to do this, right? We go to Jesus and what we do is we interpret Moses and we interpret Paul through the lens of Jesus, who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So love is a legitimate expression of biblical truth. Here's what that means for us. If your interpretation of any passage of scripture causes you or makes you to feel like you must hate your neighbor or an enemy, that is a bad interpretation of scripture. If your interpretation of scripture, or if your pastor or preacher, me included, ever comes and tells you the only way that you can be right with God and rightfully interpret his word is if you hate this or that person or group, that is a faulty understanding. Because what we find is Jesus loving and forgiving everybody. The Roman Empire, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish 
Pharisees, everybody, the people who get his disciples who failed him, Jesus forgave everyone. Love is the legitimate expression of biblical truth. By following the scriptures, we should find ourselves more engaged and more loving to the people around us than we have been before. Jesus goes on, verse 45, so that, okay, this is great. This is language, right? Love your enemies so that. That's a great way of saying because, right? Because that, do that so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And I want to stop right there. Uh, This was my son Jackson. That's just his guitar, but he was standing here. If you look at old pictures of Jackson when he was a baby, right? Like my mom is posting pictures. Jackson and I looked very similar when we were little. Some people even said about Jackson when he was younger, they would say he's a chip off what? Chip off the old block. Think about that metaphor. What it means is if I have a chip of, if I have a block of cherry wood here and I take a, like a, what do they call the thing with you chip it, right? A chipper, whatever, and you, and you knock it and you get the chip off it, right? You'll go and go, look, this little block of cherry looks just like the block where it came from, right? Hey, you look just like your old man. Listen, the idea here is if we will do this, if we will love our enemies and if we will pray for those who persecute us, maybe not all at once, but slowly and over time, people will start to go, you look familiar to me. Who is it? Where is it? It's my father in heaven. You look just like him. Wouldn't it be great if people could come up and look at us in the eyes and go, nobody has ever loved me like you except Jesus. What if? But Jesus says, we do that so that the world may see, so that they will know, so that they will see. Not only that, so that we will be. This isn't about perception. This isn't some game we play to make people think that we're something that we are. He said, do this so that you will be like your father in heaven. Listen, that's what our father does. Loves his enemies. Praise for those who persecute him. We see it in Jesus, right? Jesus is what it does, right? So he says, so he goes on and he explains this. For he, talking about the Father, for the Father makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is what's called in theological terms, we call this common grace. It's the idea that the Lord has so filled his creation with goodness that everybody can see it and look at it and go, that's great. Look, there's something happening. There's something going on so that we can look around and whether we are degenerate, which we are, or redeemed so that we can all have this experience of goodness. Do you know why? So that we can step back, and it says earlier in Matthew 5, so they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So that we can look around in the world and go, man, there's too much goodness here to ignore. And we're supposed to be a part of that. Now he starts talking about loving specifically some specific different kind of people. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now the tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the Roman Empire. They were hated. Nobody loved tax collectors because they would get rich off of their own people. In the whole dichotomy, us and them, right, which is how we break it down typically, right? Us are people like me, them are people that are unlike me. In the whole us and them dichotomy, tax collectors didn't fit because they betrayed their own people for their own own 
personal gain for filthy lucre, right? But the Roman people didn't trust him either. Why? Because they betrayed their own people for filthy lucre, right? So they were all about themselves. And what Jesus is saying, if you just walk around loving people who look like you, have the same last name as you, spend the same kind of money on the same things as you do to go the same place as you, if you do that, you're not any different than a tax collector. Why would anybody follow Jesus? Why would anybody trust their father in heaven if they're not any different from the degenerates, from the left outs, right? So we go in and we find out that us and them doesn't really hold water because God's people were the Jewish people and he makes the sun and the rain fall on the tax collectors as well. And then he goes on. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And boy, there's the other group. Tax collectors and Gentiles. The problem with the Gentiles was that God had ignored them. God chose the Jewish people outside of the, out, outside of the Gentiles. Now, that's the rest of the Old Testament is how God brings the Gentiles in. It's good news for us. We're the Gentiles. It's okay. We make it. The rest of the story is good for us, right? But what God is saying basically is here, the idea behind the Gentiles is they didn't know God. And so what he's saying is you need nothing of God in order to love people that are just like you. And so Jesus really doubles down on this idea of love being the biblical expression to people that aren't like us. People that don't look like us, act like us, behave like us, go those places. He would have said, those are just your brothers. He would have doubled down on who are your brothers. But what he said is, no, specifically the people who oppose you, who hurt you, who persecute you, who take from you, who steal from you, who get rich off of you. Pray for them. Bless them. The people that, that aren't like you, that are just outside, that haven't heard of God, they live wild and degenerate lives. Love them as well because God does. Do you see, that's where we got last week. We love people for Jesus' sake. Because we look at the world and it rains today on people who de desperately need the rain and on people who will use the rain to cover for all kinds of nefarious stuff. God just throws goodness and grace in the world as love. See? Do you know why he does that? Because love is the culture of his kingdom. If you want to know what heaven is going to be like, and again, like I, I want to subtly go at this idea of heaven. Heaven is where God is. But when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 4, he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. If our theology makes us wait for a day when we die and God helps us escape this earth to go sit on a cloud somewhere, that's not the theology of the Bible. That's not the theology of the New Testament. The theology of the New Testament is a God who redeems this good earth that he created. It's a new heaven and a new earth coming down for his people, where God dwells with his people, where we are. But the idea is we're going to live in eternity in community like this. And the way that it's not going to be like our current reality, the reason it's going to be different and better in every way is because I'm going to love my neighbors all around me because that's the kingdom. Because that's the ethos. Now, here's the good news as Christians. Are you ready? We can talk about that in such a way. But the way that we convince people is by doing it here and now. Some of you remember the Lord's Prayer, right? What did Jesus pray? Jesus says, your kingdom come how? On earth where? What do you think that means? Your kingdom come. What I believe that it means, based on the commands and the instructions that I've read in Scripture, are... His people will love God and love each other here the same way that we will in eternity. It doesn't take a rocket science or some like majorly intelligent sociological observer to understand that we're not there yet. Right? We haven't done that. And so the good news, church, is we can we can get there. But it begins by believing that when we love, that's the expression of the scripture. Believe that that's, that is the expression of 
truth. That is his kingdom. We are chips off the old block. And you know what we forgot today? Listen, I didn't forget. I just wrote it down in my notes. It's down there. You can see it if you want to look, right? We forgot our confession because here's the thing. Our confession that we say every week is about this. Do you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is about? The kingdom on earth? The statement of the kingdom of heaven is, we are badly broken. Yes, you are. That is the kingdom. Now, here's the thing. In this room are people who are fundamentally different from you on all hosts of issues. And at no point did the Father or me or anyone else ask you whether anyone else in here was loved, did we? We just acknowledged we are a people who are broken, desperately broken. Listen, there are people in this room that I went to high school with. They could probably tell you stories that would curl your hair or straighten your hair or do whatever it is that your hair needs to do, right? Because listen, standing here on a stage does not make me less sinful or less need of love or grace than you. It just means that I am deeply loved by a God who somehow makes that work. And he calls us, his people, to inhabit and to live in that same kind of kingdom. Because listen, verse 48. You, therefore, talking to you and the people, listen, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I know how this verse probably sits on you because I've read this verse. If I take this verse and I put this out, I can use this to beat up on all kinds of people, right? Because if I just take this out of context, I can say, you have to be perfect. Therefore, you said a cuss word, you're out, right? You were mean to me, you're out, right? You voted the wrong way. You spent your money on the wrong things. You did whatever about this. This passage about perfection is the summary. It is in the context of a conversation about loving your enemies. Do you want to be morally perfect before God? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't say anything in here about going to church. It doesn't say anything in here about the tithe. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do this and you'll be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That means that's what our father does. That's what the kingdom is like. That's what a chip off the old block is. That's the command. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors. Pray for people who hurt you. Pray for people who are opposed to you, who are against you. That is the why. To sum it up, why do we love people like that? Why do we do that? Because Jesus did it. And listen, it's all about Jesus. That's it. Because Jesus did it, and because Jesus told us to do it. You remember Jesus, somebody asked, like, what's the command? What do we have to do, right? And he, he told us that. That's what the kingdom is about. So why do we do it? Because Jesus did it. But how do we do that? And let me just say, I see you. And I want you to know, as your pastor, I believe with all of my heart that every person that I look at wants with every fiber of their being to Get this right. As wide and as varied as our applications and expressions of this principle are, I want you to know that my belief and my conviction about you is that you want to do this the right way, that you want to get it right. So the question is, how? How do we love people who are different from us? How do we love people who may be so different from us that we think that their whole life or their lifestyle or their whole being is, is opposed to us 
is how do we love, how do you love the Muslim? How do you love the atheist? How do you love whatever the thing is for you? Whatever that thing where you just go, I don't know how I can. How do we do it? What does it look like? How do we do it? That's our original question. What does love require of me? That's the question that Christians have to answer. In this situation, what does love require me? Not what is, what is morally good. Like that's a neat question, but I can spin that and twist it. The question that will inexorably lead us to that is in this moment confronted by this person who is created in the image of God, what does love require of me? And to answer that question, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. It's a story that you're probably familiar with, even if you haven't been to church in a long time or ever, right? So you can look at the book of Luke. It's another one of the stories of Jesus's life. And when we get to Luke chapter 10, we read the story. Uh, Jesus tells a story, and here's the setup. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That's what lawyers do. Like, if you're a lawyer in here, I love you. You're, like, you're giving us good fodder for this, right? And what did he say? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the right question to ask. This is the question. We might say, what do I have to do to go to heaven? But here's what the lawyer understood. Here's the thing about eternal life. Eternal life begins now. So it has to do with this life, and it has to do forever. So what does he say? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, and Jesus said to the man, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now let me just stop right there and just go, this guy did a great job. There's another story about a guy who's called just the rich young ruler. And Jesus asked the same question, what do I have to do to be saved? And the rich young ruler's like, oh, I've gone to church all the time and I give a tenth and I do all the stuff, all the stuff. And Jesus had the same answer. He's like, hey, you're almost there. This guy gets better. He's like, I got to love my neighbor and I got to love God and I got to do all that. And notice what? what Jesus said um, and he said you've answered correctly do this and you'll live so now easy peasy great oh that's all I got to do just say goodbye but the guy knows that this is harder than he thinks right so what does he do desiring to justify himself he said to Jesus and who is my neighbor Dun, dun, dun. That guy probably had a neighbor who was the homeowner association president who had called on him and he was ready to just listen that's the question. That's the question. Is my neighbor someone who not only does something that I don't like, but is somebody I don't like? Is the standard the same? And what it says is he wanted to justify himself. And if you'll allow me, if you'll I come with all the humility that I can possibly muster, we often place ourselves in the same position as this young lawyer wanting to justify ourselves, wanting to find an excuse and a reason why it's okay for me to not verb them to not choose to be patient, to be kind, to not boast, to not brag, to not be angry. It's easy for me to want to justify myself and say, they are so foul and so anathema to God. They are so opposed to who God is that surely God just wants me to keep my distance and stay away. And that's the best that I can do right here. And that's, that's where we are, right? And so, but when we justify ourselves that way, what we're doing is we're falling into the age-old trap of using religion or using our behavior as an entrance exam, right? I'm going to tell you, and this should be good news for you. When you die someday and we are faced with eternity, the first thing, the first question that you're going to experience, the first thing that you're going to see is not some kind of cosmic scale where every good thing you've been ever done is on one side and every bad thing is on the other, and you're just sitting there going, please. No scale in heaven. The question is, did you trust me? 
did you trust me? Did you trust me enough to love people who you found utterly unlovable? Do you trust me to not gossip about people who cannot keep their mouth shut about you? Do you trust me to forgive people who have hurt you without grief or sorrow or repentance? I believe the question that we'll find in in heaven face to face with the Father is did you trust me enough to live out life in this world that I called you to? That's the entrance exam, right? So what do we go? He says, okay, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied by telling a story, which is great. Excuse me, which is great. He said, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho. Now, here's the thing. I read a bunch of commentaries on this. The Jerusalem to Jericho road was terrible. It was dangerous. It was dirty. It was, there were robbers. There were bandits there. It was well known. If you go to Jericho by way of the Jerusalem road, you're going to get mugged. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get robbed. It's not going to go well for you. And so the implication was, if you're on that road, Sorry about your luck. You should have done differently. You should have gone a different way, right? So they're on the, on the road, and a guy, and this guy who's walking there, he falls among robbers. Now, here's the point where we go, duh, I told you. You dumb. You get what you want. You got what you chose. You got what you deserve, right? He fell among robbers, and they stripped him, and they beat him, and they left, leaving him half dead. Now, we can acknowledge that's not love. Okay, so listen, if any of you have been beating your enemies about the head and neck and leaving them left for dead on the side of the road, that's not Jesus' way. You should stop. I know most of you aren't doing that. The story continues. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, a priest from the Old Testament, part of the people of Israel, the priest was the one who handled the sacrifices. He was the one who took the sacrifices, the sin offerings, and stood before the Lord and mediated the people before God. It, was the, it would be my job, okay? It would be the pastor of the people who stand and taking the sacrifices to the altar and going before the Lord and going, God, we as a people, forgive us. We have sinned against you, forgive us. And so the priest, the guy who's supposed to represent the people, he walks along the way. Um, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He was probably late. We're, we're notoriously late. We, you know, we're all in our heads all the time. And so he walked by. And listen, it's the Jericho Road. He sees the guy over there. Everybody goes, look, if I stop and help that guy, what if then they're going to get me? What if the robbers are there? It's best if I just leave and go and I'll send somebody back and, and, and I'll do that. So he crosses the other side and he goes. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. He passed by on the other side. The Levites would have been like the worship leaders uh, in the temple, right? They would have played the music. They would have kind of done all the extra stuff around, right? So this is to very religious people. Now, when Jesus tells the story, the implication is it's a Jewish man who was beaten. This is a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levi. And so far, the priests and the Levites have walked across to the other side, and there's good reasons. If the guy dies, the priest, if that guy dies, then he's going to be unclean. He can't do his job at the temple. So I got to stay over here. Thoughts and prayers, brother. And it's like running away. Easy, right? And he goes. So religious duty, they saw him, they processed, they thought something, they crossed over, they went on the side. And listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's scary. If you saw somebody beaten on the side of the road, it would freak you out too. It would be scary. Uh, 
Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 19th century, had a quote. He said this, I never knew a man refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. Boy, did I hate reading that. So I had to tell you all to share with us, right? I love you. But you have to, and we have to contend with the reality, the draw towards self-justification and self-righteousness is almost irresistible. It causes us to look at our behavior and go, this is right. This is good. And it goes back to that same thing, right? It's right because, I'm, because God loves me and he loves me like, kind of like, like more than ever, right? And a lot of that comes back because we feel like if we're wrong, we're going to get crushed. But remember, in the kingdom, who does Father make his son shine on? the good and the evil alike. We live in a world filled with common grace, filled with enough good for everybody. So they cross to the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, remember we were talking about Samaritans earlier? They called them half-breeds. They were outside. They were excluded from the people of God. They were excluded from the will of God. But they were different from Gentiles. The Gentiles, they just kind of took for granted and they left away. And they're like, yeah, Gentiles are bad. We hate them. Like, we don't like them. They're away. But there was animosity towards the Samaritans. There was a confidence and a belief that the Samaritans were the ones that had ruined all of it. If they had just done what they had supposed to be, maybe the kingdom would have been restored and maybe King David would be back on the throne. But it was the Samaritans. So when he brings up a Samaritan, now everybody, when they were hearing that, story and the priest and the Levite go on the other side they expected they would have expected to say and another ordinary Jewish person came down the road but Jesus said a Samaritan as he journeyed he came to where he was and when he saw him he had say it friend the world is dying for want of compassion you can give compassion freely, liberally, without reservation, opulently. You can fill the world with compassion. Do you know why? Because Jesus had compassion on you. Because when Jesus saw you, he didn't find a reason to stay on the other side of the road. Because when Jesus found you, he found a reason to cross the street. You want to know how you love people who are different from you? You cross the street. You go to their world. You go to their place. Do you know why? Because the kingdom of your father is all around. There is no place where you are away from the love and the protection and the care and the goodness of father. So you cross the street. You go to where they are. You go to their mess to their beatenness, to their hurt, to their pain, and you go and you love them. And listen, to anybody who this doesn't sound good news, what this just tells me is you are too far removed from your most recent beating. You have forgotten what it means to need compassion. I, I'm happy for you. I pray for you because we need compassion. Don't forget. Don't forget where it started. It started with his compassion for you. Okay. So he had compassion in verse 34, and he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, uh, pouring on oil and wine. That was his own oil and wine, right? The wine would have been disinfected. It has alcohol in it. He put it on for his, for his wounds. He had oil to make, you know, kind of like a painkiller on this. This was his own reserve and his own store that the Samaritan had, and he's just giving away to this beaten Jewish man. Then he set him on his own animal. Do you know what that means? That he walked. 
that the Samaritan on this Jewish road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he got off of his own mount and put somebody else, this beaten Jewish guy, and he walked. Brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. That one denarius was about a day's wage. I did some figuring, ballpark, very ballpark, because I don't like math, right? So the idea is if you make $70,000 a year, this is about the, um, the Samaritan person took about $500 to $600 and left it with the innkeeper. And what did he tell him? The next day, he took out and he gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come, when I come back, right? So you want to know what an enemy does? You, you, you don't want to know how he do it? You cross the street and you get involved. You find something that hurts and you comfort it. And you bring, is someone lonely? Listen, you can know all kinds of reasons why they're lonely. You can have all kinds of reasons why they brought, themselves, brought it on themselves. If you hadn't been on the road, if you hadn't been that, if you hadn't done that. How about we just have compassion and grieve with those who are grieving? Because that's what you want. Right, you heard the story, do unto others, you would have them do unto you. Don't you love it when you know you've made a catastrophic mistake and you're sitting there with a the weight of it and someone comes up to love you and tells you like, well, really, it's your own fault. <laughs> we don't have to do that. We can trust that the Lord is fully capable of reminding people of everything that they need to be reminded of and we can simply have compassion and bind up the broken hearts. So Jesus asks a penetrating question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Mercy compassion for those who are beaten up by life because of the path that they chose to walk because of the path that they are choosing to walk even when that person in need of mercy and compassion is me see the thing about this passage is when we read this passage of scripture and we always have this we always look for ourselves right and we're like okay so where am i and we like i'm not the priest jason's the priest god jason why didn't he cross the street and do that right not the levite that's natalie that whole powers family really they're excluded from the thing right like so we're looking for for who it is and we're just like oh i'll just be the samaritan no in this story jesus is the samaritan which by the way you think God turns his face on everybody. In this story about Jesus' love, Jesus deliberately, intentionally, on purpose, without blinking, and I suspect with a twinkle in his eye, identified himself with Israel's greatest political enemy. Jesus would come back today, tell a story about a benevolent Muslim, and say, I'm that guy. Talk about me. I didn't tell the story. It's Jesus' story. You know who we are in this story? We're the man on the Jericho Road who's beaten within an inch of his life. And if it's not for the compassion of a foreign stranger, we are on our own, left to die. Jesus came back. This story begins with Jesus' rescue from, of us from the side of the road. You know where I was on that night when my mom prayed and God came and got me? I was laying in my bed. I was a full-time recreational chemist, if you know what I'm talking about, right? I all time. <laughs> I was 10 miles down a bad road and not looking for anything good. And you know what my God told me on that night? I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Friend, he's not done with you. 
don't let your enemies have the best of you. Don't let your enemies have your, have your, your power and your, and your life. Don't give it to them. Do you know how you destroy enemies? You love them. You love them till they become your allies. They love them till they become your friends. Now, you can't control what they do, but you can control what you do. This is the expression of biblical love. So, Jesus, I ask that you would give us the courage to walk this way. I pray that you would remind us every single day when we face that moment where we have to self-justify and go, God, I hated them because I pray that we would remember that moment where you encountered us. And Lord, if we think you won't ask us about our sins, you will. It's our sins that cause us to be beaten. It's our participation in the cycles of power and control and manipulation and fear and that keep us locked up and locked down. And Jesus, you found us while we were desperately in need and you simply loved us. And I pray that your church would do the same. And Jesus, we do have to acknowledge and we do have to, have to recognize that, that loving everybody doesn't mean that everything that they do is right. I love my children and I point out ways for them to grow. But I do it in the context of them knowing that they are loved. <sighs> Jesus, we just want to be like you. And we want that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, not people pairing up and dividing off and uh, you know, us against them and you. We just want you. So forgive us, Father, for our lack of faith. Forgive us for our doubt that your love is powerful enough to change. <laughs> you can change my heart. Jesus, I pray that you would make us a people who love greatly because our king is one who loves greatly. And we ask that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community. And we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week, faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and peace.